Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for the clarity of it. And thank you for all that you will show us that you have done, all that Jesus is, who he was, the things that he has done in the past, and the things that he is doing for us even now. Lord, thank you. We pray that you would uh, teach us these things, that you would direct our minds in the right way, and that that would change how we view ourselves, how we view you, and that it would flow into our hearts and our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you all know, we're talking about covenant theology, and we're talking about uh, the Mosaic Covenant. So this is week nine of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, I don't know how many weeks we've got left, but we're, we're getting close, which is exciting. Uh, we finally get to talk about other covenants in the Bible, which I'm sure you're all very excited to do as well. Um, so the big picture that we're, that we're trying to keep in mind, right, the, the main point of all, all of the covenants is that they all point to Jesus. That's true of all scriptures, true of all the covenants. They're all pointing to Jesus. And specifically covenants, um, one aspect is that they teach us who Jesus is and what he does. Um, they show us, okay, when is Jesus going to come and from whom is he going to come from? What is he going to do when he shows up? So the Mosaic Covenant, as we've been looking at these last nine weeks, has been showing us and teaching us what kind of person Jesus is going to be, what kind of things is Jesus Jesus going to do. Um, And so we've already said a few things, right? We've said already that Jesus is going to keep the law perfectly. Uh, He's going to be a mediator on our behalf. He's going to be a prophet who speaks the true word of God. He's going to be a priest who does all that's in the Lord's heart. Um, He's going to be raised uh, on the eighth day. I remember last week we talked about the feasts. We talked about how uh, the number seven is important and how seven plus one is important. Um, You could basically summarize a lot of what we've talked about the last few weeks um, when we talked about priesthood and the clean and unclean and the fact, sacrificial system and the feasts that Jesus, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism says, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest and is once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of the people and making continual intercession for them. So Jesus offers a sacrifice without blemish He's a reconciliation for the sins of the people and in making continual intercession for them is what the catechism says. So we've already talked about how Christ as priest, right, offers a sacrifice. We've already talked about how Christ as priest uh, is a reconciliation for the sins of the people uh, and that he is the one who goes into the holy place. He's the one who reconciles, meaning he's the one who cleanses God's people. Um, so when we talked about the clean and unclean system, we talked about how in Israel, right, if you became unclean, there was a physical barrier to worship. Um, but really what it was pointing to is that there's a spiritual barrier to worship, and it's our sins. And so when Jesus offers a sacrifice, he cleanses us of our sins. He removes that barrier between us and God so that now... As Hebrews says, right, he has gone into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. You can now have confidence to draw near to God. You can enter into the Holy of Holies and be in God's presence uh, without fear. And so today we're going to, we're going to continue to talk about um, the priesthood 
and the covenant with Moses, and we're going to start to draw in that last aspect of the Westminster Catechism, making continual intercession for God's people. So that will be the last aspect that we'll add um, to Christ as priest, is that he makes continual intercession for his people. Um, But before we see why that's important, we need to start asking questions of the Levite priesthood and how that differs from Christ as priest. Because we've talked a lot about how the Levites, uh, the Mosaic priesthood, points to Jesus right, and shows, okay, here's what Jesus will do. We've talked a little bit about how they point to what Jesus how they point to what Jesus will do and what they do. But there's also a sense where the Levite priesthood is limited. And that teaches us about what Jesus will do. Um, And so last week, we closed um, with this verse in, in Hebrews, which says, For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. And what that means is, when the Levite priesthood... Let me say it a different way. Jesus is not simply a better Levite. He's not simply a better Levitical priest. He's a different kind of priest. And when there's a different kind of priest, there's a different kind of covenant. Because when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. If that makes sense. Um, So, in what ways is Jesus, as a priest, different from the Mosaic Covenant priesthood? So that's the question to you guys. How is Jesus as priest different from the Levite priesthood? Jonathan? Jesus is a high priest. He has full power. You see what he does. Mm-hmm. rebukes the spiritual leaders. Okay. So he's a high priest, that's true, but there were high priests in the Levite priesthood as well. How is Jesus different from the Mosaic Covenant priesthood? Okay, yeah. Levite priesthood had one kind of sacrifice they could offer. Animals... Bulls, goats, doves, um, and they had to keep doing it. And who did they have to offer sacrifices for? Not for God, but for the sake of whom? The people and themselves. Right, so the Levites have to offer sacrifices for the people and for themselves because they are also sinful. And all they can offer is bulls and goats and doves and such. Um, So already you see that there's a difference in that Jesus offers a different kind of sacrifice. Um, He offers himself, which is a sacrifice of far more worth and also of a completely different class. It's not that, okay, bulls and goats are are a decent sacrifice. Jesus was a really good sacrifice. Because Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. So they're in a different classes. One cannot atone for sin, and one can. So that means that there are different things happening with these two different sacrifices. There's, they're connected, right? One points to the other. But what Jesus does is, is on a class of his own. And what else? What else separates Jesus from the Mosaic Covenant priesthood? His orders. 
Okay? Meaning what? <laughs> the implication being he's not a what? He's not a Levite. He's not a Levite. Yeah, all the priests of the Mosaic Covenant were Levites. All of them. Beginning with Aaron. Anyone know why? Why why the Levites? And why only the Levites? God specifically and purposefully chose that. They were the first. They were the inheritance instead of land. Okay. So God specifically chose them, right? Why did God specifically choose Levi? And this is a test of your your Bible trivia a a little bit, which I don't expect you to remember because I didn't. Um, Does anyone know? So back in Genesis 49, Jacob... He pronounces a, a blessing on all of his sons, if you remember. And it's not so much a blessing as it is a rebuke and a curse um, for a lot of them. Does anyone know what Jacob said to Simeon and Levi? It's okay if not. So in Genesis 49, Jacob says this when he's, when he's blessing right, his, uh, his sons. He says to Simeon and Levi, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Will my glory be not joined to the company? For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, imagine your dad being like, I don't even want to hang out with you. That's how bad you are and how hard it is to be around you because of your violence. So Jacob is actually referring to a specific instance. He's referring to um, a specific occurrence uh, in Genesis, which is, um, I forget where it is. I think it's Genesis 34, where uh, Simeon and Levi... Their daughter is taken by uh, some men of the t- uh, city of Shechem, and they go on a rampage, right? In their, in their violence and in their vengeance, they go and they destroy the city, right? They wipe it out. They destroy everybody. They plunder it. They take all the stuff. Um, they are the ones who lift up the swords of violence, right, and slaughter men and hamstring, hamstring oxen. And it's interesting that they do all of this on the third day. So on the third day, it says in Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi descend upon the city of Shechem. And because of that, Jacob curses them. Jacob curses them because of their violence. And then, interesting, right, that Moses, what's the, one of the first things that Moses does in the book of Exodus? Kills a dude. Kills a dude. Yeah. He's very Levite, so to speak. So there's a curse now upon Levi, a curse that they will be divided and scattered, Jacob says. In other words, that all their, all their brothers are going to get inheritances, but they will be scattered. They will not receive a land inheritance because of their violence. Then what happens is God comes along and says, I take for myself Levi. As the redemption price for Israel's firstborn. 
So he says in Numbers that instead of offering sacrifices for your firstborn son, I'm going to take Levi as the redemption price for your firstborn sons. So Levi becomes a sacrifice, in a sense. They are sacrificed for the sake of Israel. They were cursed because of their work on the third day. In a sense, they died on the third day. But God raises them again to new life in giving them a purpose. Yes, they will be scattered in Israel. They will not receive an inheritance in the land, but actually they will receive something better. They will be the ones closest to God and closest to heaven because they will be temple guardians. Right? So it's a story of, of death and resurrection symbolically, but Levi embodies that. Levi embodies sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, just in existing. So who else would be better for God to use as his priests? Right, the tribe of Levi becomes the perfect uh, priesthood because they embody substitutionary atonement. And so their ministry is one of substitutionary sacrifice, right? They sacrifice animals on behalf of the people. The problem is they can't offer the sacrifice, right? They can't, do, they can't actually take away sins because they're sinful, because they're uh, with sin. I think where in Exodus is that, that, um, that said, when the Lord, when the Lord chooses Levi as the firstborn, uh, I believe it's um, Numbers. I don't remember the chapter. I'm sorry, I didn't write it down. I think it's 338. I might be mentioning it in my sermon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's helpful. <laughs> and no, it was not <laughs> Yeah, it was. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. I didn't say no on coordinate. Exodus 3? I think 338, right? Are you talking about Levi or are you talking about the firstborn? No, no. So, so Levi being taken as the as the sacrifice or the redemption price is in Numbers. It's Numbers three, um, forty one. Numbers three forty one. And you shall take the Levites from me. I am the Lord. Instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people. Yeah. So the Levites are taken instead of the firstborn of Israel. They are a substitutionary sacrifice. So, the Levitical priesthood, right, is based around substitutionary sacrifice. Um, But even then, it is not their own doing, right? They didn't choose to do this. They were commanded by God. They were ordained by God for this uh, purpose. And so, in Hebrews 4... God says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In other words, why the Levites? Because they are the perfect embodiment of substitutionary atonement. Why only the Levites? Why couldn't other tribes be priests? Well, because only Levi was called. No one takes this honor of priesthood upon themselves. You have to be ordained by God. And so Hebrews says... So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
which is a quotation of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus was not a Levite. He was of the order of Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Who that? John? Someone we know nothing or very, very little about. Someone. He's a king. Okay. He's a king in Salem. King of Salem. Um, we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, a mystery. We don't know where he's going. Where he came from. But Abraham. Something, something called Nigel. Gave him a tithe. Yeah, Abraham gave him a tithe. Okay. his priestly office as well as a king. Okay. So, the only place that Melchizedek actually does stuff in the Bible is Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So what things does Melchizedek do in this passage that we just read? What does he do? First communion. Okay. He, he brings out bread and wine. Yeah, interesting that it's bread and wine. What else does he do? He receives a sacrifice and delivers a blessing. Okay, so he receives a tithe and delivers a blessing. Yeah. So he's a king, but he's a priest. He brings out bread and wine. He blesses Abram, and Abram honors him with a tithe by giving him a tenth of everything. Uh, So we know that he's king of Salem. Uh, Jewish tradition and early Christians both believe that Salem uh, was an early name for the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, and Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Uh, and Salem is essentially the word shalom. So Hebrews 7.2 says Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So he's a priest. He's a king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. And that's all we know. <laughs> literally, we know nothing else about this guy who sounds amazing. Right? He sounds great. Who's this, who's this wonderful king who is a king of peace and king of righteousness who brings out bread and wine and who blesses Abram and receives a tithe? Why don't we know more about him? Why not? If it's so important that Jesus himself was a priest after his own order, why so few details? What do you guys think? Any guesses? Let me ask you like this. Oh, Jamie, go ahead. He's a type shadow of Christ. Okay. We have all we know. What God has told us revealed us about Christ already in Scripture. Yeah. He, he's a type and shadow of Christ, which means basically we, we have everything we need. To know that he's basically representing Jesus. He's modeled after Jesus, so to speak. And everything that we're told about him, and also everything that we're not told about him, make him resemble Jesus. 
It's actually meant to point us to Jesus in that we don't know very much about him. Hebrews 7, 3 says this, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, did Melchizedek have a mother and a father? Yeah, of course. Did he have a genealogy? Yes, he did. Um, Did he have neither beginning of days nor end of life? No, he did. He had a beginning and he had an end because he's still human. But because we're not told any of that, because we're not told his genealogy, we're not told where he comes from, we're not told who his parents are, we're not told when he dies like we are with all the other biblical figures, he resembles Jesus because we're not told stuff. It's as if he doesn't have beginning of days. It's as if he doesn't have an end. It's as if he doesn't have a genealogy because he's the uncreated one. He is because he's still human, but he's pointing to the one who will come who doesn't have a beginning, to the one who doesn't have an end, who, to the one who doesn't have a genealogy because he's not a human. He's God. And yet, His ministry is modeled after the one who is to come, who will come to earth and become a human, become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews does something interesting. Hebrews goes on to say that Abraham honored Melchizedek by giving him tithes. What's the significance of a tithe? It represents the whole. Okay, represents the whole. Yeah. Who do you... Uh, G? It's a form of worship. Form of worship? Yeah. Okay. John? It's to be of first importance. It's first importance. Yeah, you give the best. And the first. And the first. Not the second or the third. Brittany? It's often part of the sort of a contract tied to the stronger king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't give a tithe to someone weaker than you. You don't give tribute. The the one who is conquered doesn't then give the one who's been conquered a tribute. No, the the conquered person gives the stronger king tribute. That's how it works, right? So when Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek, he is saying that Melchizedek is the stronger king. That I am not the strong king. Even though Abraham has just won a big battle and won a lot of, of spoil, um, he, in a sense, offers worship to the Lord by giving it to this priest of the God Most High. So he's giving tithes to the one who is superior to him. And Hebrews does something interesting again. Hebrews says that theologically speaking, Levi, all the way in the far future, through Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek then. Theologically speaking, right, the Levite priesthood was in Abraham, not created yet, not born yet, but theologically they are wrapped up in Abraham so that when Abraham gives tithes, it's as if Levi is giving tithes to Melchizedek, proving that the Levite priesthood is is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's the point of Hebrews. That there is an inferior one and a superior one. And the Levite priesthood is the inferior priesthood. And then Hebrews goes on to explain why the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 7. So we'll we'll be reading a few passages from Hebrews. 
If you can't tell, we're doing a lot from Hebrews. Okay, so Hebrews 7, verse 9 says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So that's what we just talked about, that theologically speaking, Levi is the inferior who's paying tithes to the superior. And then Hebrews seven eleven says this, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So in other words, if the Levite priesthood had been, if you could be made perfect through their ministry, you wouldn't need a different ministry. Which means that if the Mosaic Covenant could make you perfect or offer salvation, you wouldn't need another covenant that comes later. Because when, the, the, there, because when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. Right? If the Levitical priesthood had been uh, able to administer perfection, what need would there have been for another priest to arise? Melchizedek, verse 12, For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So in other words... There's a change in the priesthood when Jesus shows up, which means that there's a change in the law. And this change in the law is for the better. This means that this new law, this new covenant is better. And we know that uh, because he says in... um, The former priests were many in number. What verse is that? Sorry. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in, continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, how do you know that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood? Because the Levites died. And when they die, their ministry stops. But Jesus doesn't die. Or he did die, but he was raised again. And so he always lives to make intercession. He holds his priesthood forever. Because when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. So if the Levitical priests die, that means the law will die with them. But if Jesus lives forever, that means his covenant will never stop. And so verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Or Paul says it like this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So that's Romans 8. So remember the the catechism question that we uh, talked about at the beginning of this lesson. How does Jesus execute the office of priest? 
Well, he offers a sacrifice without spot. He uh, is to be a reconciliation for the sins of the people and making continual intercession for them. So what does it mean to make intercession? Yeah, makes him a mediator, right? Someone who's interceding on behalf of someone else. But what else? That describes what it is, but what does it mean to be to intercede for someone? If I were to intercede for 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 John, what would that mean about John? He, he needs some help. <laughs> he needs some intercession. Yeah. And what would I be saying? Would I be saying, yeah, John's terrible. Sorry, judge. He deserves, deserves to go to jail. Would I be a very good intercessor if I said that? No. So what does an intercessor do? They plead the case of another. They plead the case. Another way to say it is they advocate for now you could say that Jesus is an advocate. means that if I was interceding for John, I'd be on John's side. I'm for John. Everything that I say and do is for John's good. So how can Jesus intercede for us? Because he always lives. Because he always lives. And because where is he? He's in heaven. Meaning... Yeah, he's in heaven. Specifically, what room in heaven does the Bible describe Jesus as being in? The right hand of God, the throne room. Because what happens in a throne room? Judgments are declared. That's where the king sits in judgment to declare, you're innocent, you're guilty, here's the truth. It's when Solomon sits, right? Solomon sits and and uh, adjudicates between the two women. God is sitting in his throne adjudicating as the righteous judge. And Jesus is there at his right hand advocating for you. And because he always lives, he always advocates for you. And on what basis can he do this? Well, verse 26 of Hebrews 7. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, on what basis, on what legal basis does Jesus argue your case? He says, look at my sacrifice. Look at the blood that I spilled. That penalty for their sin has been paid. And he advocates for you to God Most High and says, forgive them. They are innocent. Another way to put it is that a sinful priest can only offer a sin-stained sacrifice. But a perfect and holy priest can only offer a perfect and holy sacrifice. So Jesus, 
offered a perfect and holy sacrifice, which was your redemption price. And because he lives forever, that redemption price will continue forever. The covenant that he is a mediator of will continue forever. So that forever, Jesus will stand on your behalf. And every time you sin, Jesus will stand in your defense. Every time you fall, he will point to the sacrifice that he made for you. And he will forever do that. Because he is the guarantor of a better covenant. One that is able to make perfect those in it. So, that's Jesus as our intercessor. The Mosaic Covenant, the the Levitical priesthood, points us to the fact that Jesus is not just a better priest, he's a different kind of priest. And the covenant that he institutes is not just one that's better than the Mosaic Covenant, it's a different kind of covenant. It's a change in the law. Because when the priesthood changes, the law changes. Because the Mosaic was always meant to pass away. It was not one that God instituted for perfection. So we don't believe that there's two modes of of salvation. One through the law and one through grace. It's only grace. Because the law cannot make perfect. Not anymore. Not because of sin. We need a priest who will always live to intercede for us. And that's what Jesus does. Any questions? about Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian priesthood and Levites and stuff. Does that all make sense? Okay. If you have any questions, feel free to spat them out or talk to me afterwards or email me. Um, I want to go back to... As we move on to our next topic, I want to go back to a, a little detail in the Genesis account of Melchizedek. Right? Genesis 14 says, Now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, right, he comes to Abraham, he brings out bread and wine, and it says, For he was a priest of the Most High God. Is there anything that strikes you about that sentence? Maybe about Melchizedek's office? He's a priest of the Most High God. But he's also what? He's a king. Were the Levites ever kings? No. Actually, they weren't supposed to be. They were the priesthood, but kings came from the line of Judah. That's actually back to the the blessings and curses that Jacob pronounced upon his his sons. To, To Judah, Jacob says... The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, the Levites are the priesthood, and the Judites are the kings. That's how it works. And yet, here's Melchizedek, who is king and priest. So, Jesus, right, if if Melchizedek is modeled after Christ, that means that Melchizedek is pointing to someone who's going to come not just as a priest, but also as a king. And we've already talked about how Jesus is a prophet, right? He's the Word of God. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. 
So now we have to talk about kings. All right, what, were, what were kings in the Mosaic Covenant? What were they pointing to? What was their office? How did they point to Jesus? And what kinds of things did they do? What was the instructions for them? So we're going to talk about that as our next topic. Um, just for today, we're, we're almost out of time, so we'll just cover some broad, some broad strokes. What does a king do? He rules. Yeah. And what does that look like? Does it look like, hey, you go over there and shine my horse's shoes? Okay. Yeah. Okay, he was chosen by God to represent God, specifically to represent what part of God? So prophets represent God's word, priests represent God's heart. What do kings represent? Kingdom, dominion, power, authority. Kings represent the authority of God. That's why they're anointed by God. Right? Saul was anointed. David was anointed king. Um, so kings rule. Right? They represent God's authority. And what kinds of things did they do? How was their rule worked out? You can use, think about like government in modern day. What does government typically do? Okay. Maybe that was a loaded question. Um, in an ideal world, what should government do? Enforce the law, protect the people. Yeah, those are both good. Anything else? Maybe, what, what things do they protect the people from? Foreign invaders. Foreign invaders, yeah. What else? Domestic invaders. Domestic invaders, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. They protect the borders, right, from invasion. And they protect the people from law-breaking and from crime and from disputes and from problems that arise when humans live together. Yeah, that's all related to government and kingship is they are protectors. Right? They're the ones who guard the borders. They're the ones who administer justice in the land. Right? They set the law and then they enforce the law. And if they are following the Lord, they will inset, they will set godly laws that enforce justice and prevent wickedness. Right, so I think it's Second uh, Peter. Um, he talks about how the emperor or, or the kings and rulers, right? Their job is to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Jonathan, considering we're talking about kings, if God was going really Mosaic covenant by the book, just so that like the people wouldn't get all mad about Jesus, He could have one side of Jesus' family be from the tribe of Judah and the other. Be but remember, we just talked about the fact that Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi because he's of the order of Melchizedek. I know. And Melchizedek is a king, right, of what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Where did the Mosaic kings rule from? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So there's a, there's a link there. Like he could have... The boy, the man, be from Judah, 
He, he could have, but that would, that would be missing the point a little bit. But it's not, it's not a bad question. Um, but we're, we're almost out of time, so maybe we could talk about it a little bit later. Uh, the point being that, yeah, Jesus is a priest king. And he represents like all the priests, uh, the Levitical priesthood, and the Judah kings. Right? They all point forward to Christ as a priest king, just like Melchizedek. So kings rule. Right? They represent the Lord's authority. They administer justice. They protect the people. Um, these are all things that kings do. And there's a few other things that we'll touch on. But I think for today, that's, that's probably enough. Um, we're almost out of time. But next time, we'll, we'll keep talking about kings. In the priest, uh, kings in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, now we're getting close. We are getting so close. You can almost smell the Davidic Covenant coming. All right. Let's pray uh, and prepare our hearts for worship. Lord, we thank you for who you are. You are holy and perfect, and we are not. We are sinners, Lord, and we confess that. We ask for your forgiveness, and we thank you that you have set up your son to be an intercessor for us to every time we sin whether it's in thought or word or deed Jesus stands on our behalf to intercede for us to advocate and plead our case even though Lord it is our sin the penalty has been paid help us to rejoice in that may you put thanksgiving into our hearts so that as we worship you today we worship you with gratitude with truth and with joy that our worship and our singing and our praises and our gifts might be for your glory. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.